Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with my reliable and very funny, apparently, co-host, Teos Abadia. Hello, Mr. Funny. What's up? I, I realized I wore this shirt on the day that we're talking to Rob Schwab, and I'm like, was my brain being ironic? Was I being clever without knowing it? I don't know, but uh, yeah, I wore my Mr. Funny shirt. Uh, I think, honestly... Nice. Truth be told, it was because I'm heading towards a colonoscopy this week, so I, I'm trying to keep my spirits uh, all super bright with the prospect of not eating at all for an entire day. And... Yeah, that's that's no fun. And I think colonoscopy might be a spell in Shadow of the Demon Lord. I'm not sure. <laughs> yep. And uh, I I I'm in my new digs. It yeah. is like. Uh, up the plane of Tartarus in here, pretty much, <laughs> but uh, we we will hopefully build up over time to add some personality to to the place. Welcome um, so to your new place. It's great to be coming to you from from the new place. But as as Teo said, we will be talking with Rob Schwalb later in this episode. He is the creator of Shadow of the Demon Lord, and he is now doing a Kickstarter for a new game with a similar rule set called Shadow of the Weird Wizard. So we're going to hear all about that later. But now we're going to hear from all of you. We are going to go to our listener corner, where we first hear from Andy Demps via our Patreon Discord. I've kind of edited this question down a bit, so bear with me. I'm halfway through reading an adventure from Wizards, and I'm trying to figure out if I only really gives me half of what I want or need to run an adventure while making some odd choices like if you fail the ability check, you lose the contest, take damage, and end up prone. Okay, I'm prone. What happens next? Nothing. Or on the 10-mile-high mountain with a spontaneously erupting volcano that chucks boulders, but no lava or gas. I digress. Or is this how they think 5e is played with an eye toward streamed actual plays which they have expressed an intention to design for, along with shorter session online play. Geez, did I just submit a listener question? Yes, you did, Andy. And in fact, I think you submitted about four, three of which <laughs> we're going to deal with today. So let's actually, let's break this down into to two parts, with one part being a, a dual question. Um, I'm not going to call out any adventure or any particular author here. But let's break this down design-wise. Uh, the first question has to do with that weird adventure design where if you fail the check, you take damage and fall prone, but so what? As we've discussed many, many times on the show, role-playing games are dual beasts. They are games thought of in the most basic sense of competing against something. They're also narrative engines that drive story. You will get lots of situations in adventures or in games where a success or a failure at a particular thing might make sense game mechanically, but doesn't have any um, ongoing effect on the game mechanics, while it still may have some effect on the story. So in the sense of this question about getting knocked prone, as a game designer, Yes, getting knocked prone when there's nothing around to hit you doesn't seem like it does anything. And you're right, it doesn't. Because you're not in combat, 
So being prone doesn't mean anything in terms of that game mechanic. However, it could mean something in terms of the story, whether it's the story of the character who is now embarrassed because they were knocked down. And it could mean something to the story of the players who get the laugh about this. And it may become a running joke throughout an entire campaign. It may be the highlight of a campaign because this thing happened that's not even important mechanically or in terms of the narrative of the characters. So while it's not pristine, perfect, elegant design to have that, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have. The best game designers will find a way in their games and in their adventures to make that thing important in all aspects of the game. So it would be important mechanically, and it would be important narratively, and it would be important to the meta fun that the players are having at the table. But it takes a lot of design and a lot of thought and a lot of testing to make that happen. So I'm going to stop now and let Teos throw in some uh, thoughts. I'll here. just quickly add that, you know, when it comes to 5e, sometimes what happens is an editorial pass that'll say, well, if you fell and you took damage, you've got to be knocked prone because that's just how it works mechanically. And so someone could have just said, this has to be there. Uh, it could have even happened at the end. Or maybe the person writing it was like, well, I need to be thorough. Here's how the mechanics of 5e work. So I've got to note this because it is, even though it's meaningless from the tactical perspective. But I, I agree with you, Sean, that sometimes these things can actually be great fun. And I, I'm reminded of a time that we ran Fate, and I'm pretty sure we weren't running it well, but there was there's this concept of zones. And so the battle moved to another zone and it left a player in an empty tavern. And the DM had them roll to get out of that zone and they failed. So we laughed about how he had run into a table and stumbled over the chairs and now he's on the ground. And then the next round, he does the same. And basically, he never got out of that tavern. So it was just this comedy about how he kept just, you know, he's caught up in the uh, uh, curtains that are by the wall. And then he's, you know, stumbling onto the ball and bar and slips and falls. And just it became actually a ton of fun, <laughs> even though it was mechanically very dumb. And the DM should have just said, of course, you can move. There's nothing impeding you. But uh, it became quite hilarious, right? Yeah. In fact, sometimes I think it can be fun to put a game mechanical thing and a story thing at odds mm -hmm. where if you win the the game part of it, you actually lose the narrative part of it. Um, there can be fun in creating that drama and that tension. Um, just keep that in mind in case it comes up again later. Uh, so that was one about this, this adventure design thing. Two was creating adventures for streaming as opposed for playing. And there's been a lot of talk about this and it's been brought up by designers. It's been brought up by fans who are either hoping for it or are worried that it will happen. And to be honest, among people where I've sat down and talked about game design, this has never come up because I think most people try to create stuff, and I know that this applies to me, try to create stuff where you're creating a tool for the game master to run the best possible session they can run and turn it toward an experience that you want them to have. And that's the best thing that you can do. 
I'm not going to worry about whether the game master is running it for a group of friends in private, for a table of players in public, streaming it, whatever. I'm going to do that. Um, are there ways to make the game or the adventure work for streaming? Possibly. I don't know enough about streaming and live play and dealing with the chat while you're running the game to, to even go that far down that rabbit hole yet. But I think if you make a good game or a good adventure, it's going to work for everyone. Yeah. And, and that's where my focus is sort of sitting right now. Yeah, I don't see a lot of evidence of really any game strongly working on um, a streaming or virtual tabletop design, um, possibly with the exception of, of some of the critical role adventures, though it's hard to separate the kind of thinking analysis bias you bring to anything they provide just because they are so keyed on on, on streaming. But a lot of what streaming does when it's highly successful is in creating drama around the characters. And so systems or even just stories that bring out those characters will succeed. But that doesn't mean that the entire game needs to change, right? I mean, we were watching fantastic, compelling streams of fourth edition games and fifth edition and Pathfinder and you name it, right? There are great streams of, of all kinds of systems. I don't know that that's the secret sauce is not the system. Um, obviously, you want the system to not get in the way or have strong negatives. But I mean, a DM can work wonders with almost anything. And, and so I don't know that a stream for, you know, Honey, Honey Heist is necessarily better than a stream for 5e. No, right. It's really up to kind of the magic that all the players are going to bring in. And, and that's the emphasis that I think happens away from the mechanics. I, I like you, I do not see designers actively really weaving anything in D&D towards a particular outcome like that. Mm -hmm. And the third question there that we're going to talk about is creating adventures or games for shorter or online play sessions. And I think this has been something that designers and, and developers and adventure writers have been thinking about mm -hmm. as the game uh, progresses, not in terms of the rules, but in terms of how it's consumed and how it's used. I know since third edition D&D, I've been thinking about this. What needs to go into a four-hour experience versus what needs to go into a one-hour experience and everything in between. And so, yes, you can design and you can, as, as we'll, we'll talk about with Rob later, Rob's game is meant to be played in a full campaign in 10 short sessions. Mm -hmm. So that design of the game system and the adventures and you know the whole campaign structure does take that into account. And I think that is important for game designers to think about. Yeah, I agree with that absolutely. The the and the pacing of how you are approaching scenes, I think, is also something that sees a lot more attention these days, right? So the, the idea, and and it's even in this adventure that Andy's talking about about the idea where do you give breathing room to the adventure versus where do you really detail what happens um those are questions that 5e well or the, sorry that dnd has wrestled with a lot right because it is a game that has shifted in what it 
exactly does at the table and, and, and the degrees to which it's doing things like combat versus narrative. And, and so I think there's a lot of attention to it and a lot of attempt to, to change scenes and try new things around that. And that may be more of what we're seeing in this particular example is someone's attempt to provide some breathing room in some places, but what that delicate line of somebody who's not used to that um, still has the supporting structure they can do to just run that scene and move on, or they can breathe life into it. Could that be better? Yes, but that's always word count, right? And, and it is tough. And so I think sometimes the, 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 the idea is we want the adventure to do all of this, including this travel and this stop at this place and have these conversations and then this exciting scene and only in this word count. And, you know, maybe that's just too much of a goal up front, but, but, uh, but, you know, it is what it is. Hope what I would love to see is more ways that DMs can see that and know exactly what to do with it. Yep. Yeah. And speaking of that question uh, of DMs and what to do with it, Kurt Ugel via YouTube has this question regarding prescription versus teaching. Uh, I truly love your demanding the why of things as you review the fifth edition DMG. On that note, do you use specific strategies in your personal DMing styles? What do these achieve? I have two that are not in the DMG and I hope they are worth sharing. One, I avoid prescribing a character's thoughts and feelings. When it does happen, I collaborate with the player. Now, why do I do this? This avoids editorial overstep or game master overstep. Players are not passive and they are in charge of their character stories inside and out. I will say yes. And as the DM, I will often describe something that physically happens to a character, especially when they fail an ability check or fail a saving throw. But I leave it up to the player to decide how what their characters think or feel about that. And I write a lot about that in my uh, D&D Beyond article on box text for the let's design an adventure series so you can go read that and i'll save you a few minutes of, of listening there uh, however let's remember that conflict and drama and DD is not just physical sometimes we play it that way but these characters are living breathing um, imaginary but living breathing thing uh, beings and so that conflict can also be mental and this harkens back to that question from Andy, right? Sometimes I will tell a player, you really want to push that button. You know, you find the lever, you find the button, and you really want to push. It says do not push an elven above it, but you really, really want to push it. So I am in that case stepping into the character's inner thoughts mm. to create that tension and create that drama. Then if the player does push the button, especially if their flaw is, I am curious, or I always push the button, <laughs> right? Then I want to say, yes, you do want to push the button. That tension, that drama is appropriate for a game master to present to the player, not necessarily to say you push the button, but you want to. And then we can use inspiration I wish inspiration, as we all do, was better a better tool in 5th edition. But then I can use that to say, if you push the button, I will give you these rewards because you know that something bad's going to happen that you can then use to get out of the situation, a la fate points. Yeah. Um, 
This reminds me a little bit. I, I love everything you've said, and it, the question reminds me a little bit of something that I do with NPCs often, which is to ask player characters something that makes them think and share something about their past or, or develop their background, even on the fly, right? Because often it's sort of like the, the, the typical sort of like, tell me why I should hire you, you know, list the you know, then the, list the names of the dungeons you emptied. <laughs> it feels like it's a resume question. But more interesting is to try to ask some sort of question that gets something insightful out of the character uh, because it, it, it creates that sort of, that the feeling versus the doing, right? And, and, and I think that can be very powerful for, for everybody at the table when that player chooses to disclose something. And... Uh, and and it's great, you know, and it can be anything. It can be, you know, just a simple NPC kid that's just saying, you know, you look like such a powerful hero, but you ever fail at anything? Mm -hmm. You know, and just see what the player does with that, right? And that that right. can be really neat. Um and, and exchange. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the adventures I wrote, the characters had to pass through this door, they had to answer questions. And one of the questions was, What's your mother's name? some players absolutely loved that they even if they'd never thought about their character's backstory they just went off and were talking about the memories and and then some players absolutely panicked they were just like and you all you had to do was make up a name you right. didn't have to you know matilda okay there right. you go good you you but you know they absolutely froze in terror um and you don't want that though, right? You don't want, yeah. so then as the game master, you, you can ask, well, do, do you remember your mother? Do, you know, you can lead them through that mm -hmm. process without having to uh, to step in and narrate for them. Yeah. And some players are happy to give you that agency and have <laughs> you tell them, you know, their backstory for them yeah. because they, they want to sort of absorb rather than, then create and and that's okay too. There's there's nothing wrong with that type of player or being that player every once in a while even. Totally. Yeah. Do you want to take question two here? I'm running out of voice. Yeah, juice. absolutely. So uh, the second question: I encourage a play flow structure in which I first set the scene. The player describes what their character attempts in general attempts in general terms with their intent, and afterwards we roll. I then gonna give a ruling on degrees of success and the impact of the damage. Most importantly, I then ask the player to briefly and cinematically describe the lead up to and execution of this moment and the character's reaction. Why? It slows the game a bit, but players feel great as they are expressing their character's story and style far more fulsomely. This collaboration excites everyone as it encourages everyone's deeper attention and investment and also helps players embrace success and failure as both become much more interesting. Um, yeah, I think that's really cool. I I suspect that the most important part is that you as a DM are thinking through what you do, what your process is, and how you work off of it. And 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 that that you are approaching things like this. I think the more that you do that and you have this introspective quality to, to seeing how the game deploys, and then you do something, you come up with a format around it, the better it'll be. Uh, the example that I would give is that I do something that not all DMs like. I like doing a lot of rolling. And, and a common piece of advice that I will hear people say is, 
don't call for needless roles. I call for needless roles. And the reason I do it is to keep people engaged and to give you the pleasure of rolling those dice that are sitting there in front of you and using those skills that are sitting there in front of you on your character sheet. And But I will riff off of it. And what happens over time is players become very accustomed to the fact that I do this. Not, not, and I don't think it's that they become accustomed to me, DM, doing it, but more that the world behaves this way and the world works this way and that this is how the game deploys itself. So you walk into a room and I might know that your character background has to do with you, you like a lot of history stuff or you're, you know, a um, um, something to do with antiquities or things like that, archaeologists, something like that. And so might, I might have you roll to just see what you know. And I just look at how high that number is. And based on that, I riff what I tell you. And hopefully that piques your interest and makes you say things and respond and whatever. And it's not a needed role. And I could have just given you information, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of that, right? I'm not going to screw the players over this. I'm, I'm working through it and deploying that. And, and so there'll be these constant reasons to roll and do little things and pick up little bits um, that, that it, you know, the other advice would be, well, no, don't only, only just give them the information. Like, why is this even happening? But it's because I like that interplay. And the more important part is that I have that system by which I make that work for the players and, and for me. I, I agree. The only thing I would add is uh, uh, the approach given here of encouraging the players to describe things. Like with the, what's your mother's name? Some people will love it. Some people won't. Mm -hmm. And so it usually only takes one or two times where you ask that question or you prompt someone to add and they hesitate. If they, if they hesitate twice, give them give them a break give them yeah. a pass and find the players that love to do that and go with go with them uh, because some people don't want to be that creator in the narrative sense or in the interpersonal intercharacter sense um, so just do it at the table and then step back either in the moment or later and say how'd that work did that get the response I wanted? Did the players seem delighted to be able to do that? Or did they seem burdened by having to do that? And then you can adjust from there. Yeah, that, that's a great point. There are a lot of aspects like that where, that really work for some players and don't, right? The whole like, you know, you walk into the bar, tell me about the bartender. Some players really don't like that. I'm not actually a huge fan of it. I don't mind if the entire game's that way, but I don't sort of really love it mixed into everything. But other variations of that, I do. So, so just, yeah, it's good to keep an eye out and see whether all the players really like that and how to work with them in, in your, for your particular group. Yep, for sure. So thank you for those questions. And now we will get to our news and commentary section, starting with the Tal Darai campaign reborn setting, now available on D&D Beyond. And I went, whoop. That is a so surprise. So at first... Yeah, at first I thought, well, of course it's on D&D Beyond. It's a Wizards of the Coast book. And then I thought, wait a second, that's not a Wizards of the Coast book. Or is it? Or isn't it? It's not. Um, so for the first time on D&D Beyond, you can explore the vast continent of Tal Dorai from the Critical Role uh, show. You can unlock nine subclasses, five backgrounds, and magic items and monsters featured in the Critical Role campaigns. And there's a little tag next to the name. 
It's the first one I've ever seen that says these magic words, third party. So we now have third party products on D&D Beyond. I thought that was really super interesting. Um, the third party tag is amazing because you know we heard at the D&D Summit and even before that, oh, there's going to be third party content. Um, and so I was very curious to see what it would look like. And I went to one of my characters and I edited it and I thought, great, I'm going to, you know, give it the cruel feet, not available. All right. I'll give it one of the backgrounds, not available. And so I'm thinking what's going on because all of their marketing was very much about how this was all enabled. And so I look and you have to go to your account, the icon on the top, right. Um, and, and from there you, you, Go to your toolbar, pick marketplace, and then sync my entitlements, which, you know, that's mm -hmm. my new pickup line. Um, and uh, and then, boom, suddenly that appeared. So if you're having trouble, go sync your entitlements, if you know what I mean. Uh, and suddenly you will be able to actually add this thing in. So they did take that work on of making sure that the feats are there, the backgrounds are there, the spells are there, all that kind of thing. Um, which I think is is really huge because that means now the the D and D Beyond team has the experience of bringing in this book, um, and maybe can better decide. Gee, do we want to do this with you know every third party publisher out there? If you think of the DMs Guild firehose of content, would you want to you know enable that many feet spells and everything? And just how do you filter that out and all that? So. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good question. What what this will? I hope it's created some real learning lessons at uh, D and D Beyond. Yep. Um, so, as Teo said, it unlocks not only the source book, but if you sync your entitlement, you can choose them for your character sheets and all of those special drop down boxes in the character builder and on your digital sheets and in the searchable listings. Uh, you can view the table of contents for free if you want to buy the book. It's normally $39.99. For some reason, I saw it as a 25% off at $29.99. Maybe it was because I'm a you know pro subscriber or whatever, but it's out there. And there are all sorts of preview articles as well, where you can see based on, you know, their sort of articles about stuff on DD Beyond, getting reviews of it, what's up there, and and so forth. There is a link in our show notes. Yeah, and, and the other so, thing I, that came up, Sean, is in thinking about this is this kind of kind of comes out of nowhere. But you know, D and D had worked on two books collaborating. I had kind of heard that there were three books that they were going to do together, and and I'm curious whether this is sort of a way to close out the agreement and sort of say, you know what, how about you integrate this book and and we're done, and we we don't do another book together. So I'll be very curious if the, if that isn't the case, right? Do we see another collaboration? Because it, it feels like Critical Role is really focused on what they're doing. Uh, and, and it wouldn't make a lot of sense for both companies to go and work on something else. So this may have been a nice way to sort of, the way that, that uh, on an album contract, uh, a recording artist will say, all right, how about a best of album? Sure, you know, like, let's let's call that the album. And, and they just, you know, you don't have to, re you record one extra track and you're done and and you know, you fulfilled your contract obligation. I wonder if this yeah. is sort of this kind of agreement. Well, we'll see if any more books come out as collaborations between the two, or if 
critical role and, and their game design press, Darrington Press, is completely moving off into their own direction with not one but two role-playing games um, already out or in the works. So Jeremy Crawford has spoken more on the, the playtest experimentation. We mentioned last time about comicbook.com's Christian Hoffer having an interview with Jeremy, and it was going to come out in chunks. Well, the next chunk is out. What does it tell us, Teos? What does it tell us? So the, the kind of big thing, and it, and it comes off of a, a session that they had at Gen Con, is that they're now calling the first five Unearthed Arcanas an experimental phase. Did you know that, Sean? Those were all experiments. And it's very it interesting. Um, and he, he says, quote, we were intent, int very intentionally swinging hard with a number of those options, but that's exactly why we led with them, because we wanted the community to have time to talk about them, debate them, give us their feedback. And, you know, it's really interesting to hear that now, because that was not how it was communicated when it was happening. Um, and so this is sort of new terminology of, oh, yeah, we were swinging for the fences and, and kind of providing you with wild things. You didn't like some of those, so that we took the ones you most liked. And every time they think about talking about what people liked, it always comes out that it's weapon mastery. <laughs> so we're bringing weapon mastery into the books. And then the things you didn't like, they're not coming across. What do you think, Sean? I... I believe that that's what they were doing, even though they didn't necessarily say that they were doing, but it does come off as awkward. You know, it comes off as the student who turns in a really bad paper and you, you say, look, like, oh, I thought this was the draft, right? Right. Even if it wasn't the case, it, you know, it comes off as, as awkward. So I, I perfectly believe that this, you know, the first things they put out were, let's see what people think of these really wild ideas. And then mm -hmm. we will gauge things from there. I Now, if they had said it then, yeah. and maybe they did, right? Maybe in, in they're, they're like, maybe, you know, these are some of our, who knows? Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't judge them sure. based on th that particular quote. I, I'm... I'm over the playtest um, in the sense that I already know that playtests maybe don't mean much. Um, and so I am focused now on what's going to be the final version because yeah. that's what I need to know. And if I worry too much in my role as a game designer who will probably continue designing 5th edition, 5e, 2e, whatever you want to call it, uh, stuff, if if my brain space is always, ooh, what did they do in this play test? And I need to change the way I'm thinking. Yeah. It's it's gonna go probably be all for naught anyway. So I'm going to just wait until I get a final draft that I can work with. Yeah. And and I think you saw that you saw some people trying to sort of adjust their design to reflect what was in those early packets. Um mm -hmm. but I, I just saw it it seems to me a lost opportunity that they could have said. It, it's funny, as I think more and more about where the playtest is, I actually think we're going to get more and more of what we, like you and I, have said we want, which is don't change a whole lot. Just polish a few things that are obvious and, and keep the majority of the book. And in some ways, it seems like that's really what's happening, um, with some exceptions. But I think in general, it is going back to being a lot more like 2014. But had they said, we want to try these things, 
tell us whether you love this thing as a change or whether you don't want this to come forward, that would have been a lot more positive for the community and would have seen a lot less pushback and a lot more communication, right? Because when someone tells you, hey, I'm going to repaint your car, you're like, I'm sorry, what? You know, like, I would like to now object. I, I'm going to fight you. That's the mentality I'm in, right? But if you say, I'm going to show you some pictures of your car in different colors just to see whether you like them, you'd be like, okay, that sounds neat. Show me what it looks like. <laughs> Very different, right? Communications and outcomes because of how you've related yeah. to me. I I agree to a point, but I think at some point there are diminishing returns on the amount of communication that you have to provide to people who are going to not like what you do no matter what. Sure. Um, so, you know, if they had yeah. come out and said, we're going to, here is your car in many different colors, people are going to say, well, you're the experts. Why are you showing me all of these colors? Why don't you just pick the color that you think is best? You're mm -hmm. the, you're the game designer, not me. Right. So th there's always going to be a comeback for people who want to come back negatively. Um, yeah, and, and I agree I just, better communication is better. Yeah. But at some point, like I said, there is a law of diminishing returns in the amount of communication that you can provide because there's always going to be a net out there to pick in yeah. some way. I just think the wording, you know, if I think of any video where they've been discussing the inner Arcanas, it's done with a lot of certainty. We're making this change because here's the feedback we've had in the past and here's what we're... You know, it's all very like, this is obvious, we believe in this. And now it's like, oh, that was a wild experiment. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just think that could have been done differently. Um, there's another yeah, piece here it, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. You want to say more to that? No, no, no. I, okay. I, I agree. I, yep. I agree that, yeah. Um, so they, they said that a number of experiments are not moving forward despite being above the 70% threshold of playtest approval. And in the interview, Jeremy says, Scores aren't the full story, and we listen to sort of online discussion and other things as well. Um, while people were often excited by a number of these experiments, there was a lot of also a lot of concern about what this would do. What would this do to the existing game? And so that concerns me in that it sounds like well, your polling is not really giving you the information you need, and then you're just sort of listening online, which worries me because that's always the super invested players who are grumbling online. And, and it generally just, as I've said before, worries me greatly that this playtest has not tried to reach out to the vast numbers of sort of uncounted players that are out there playing in gaming stores or in conventions or just, you know, in homes that aren't part of your online hard-baked community, right? Well, how do you reach them? Uh, you have well, you ha you have to reach out to them as D and D Next often did, right? It, it went went to gaming stores with pamphlets, and it went to conventions, and it ran play tests and looked at how people were playing and behaving and what they were doing at the actual table. It did a lot of things like that that I don't see this play test iteration doing. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I, that wasn't a facetious question. I yeah I, yeah <laughs> I, yeah I. I was like curious about how yeah. you would have handled that. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's what I thought worked in the past. That I mean, it is hard, right? It is hard because they are the uncounted masses. How do you get into a random person's home game? But but I think that this has been a long enough process. They could have slipped things into materials, right? They could have they could have gotten out there um, and reached out more widely. But I, I don't see them particularly trying, other than obviously there's the banner on D and D Beyond, so that's helpful to those. But 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 also. 
these are enormous. I mean, you and I aren't filling out the play tests and a lot of people that I talk to aren't filling out the plays because they're just so big that I have to be so incredibly opinionated to fill it out and, and hats off to anyone who is. Uh, I mean, I am opinionated, but I don't have that time um, and commitment to it. I wish I did. If it were shorter, I absolutely would because I would like to. You know, often what I have is it's one of those tabs on my browser that I would love to get to, but I just never can because I don't have an hour and a half to devote to a survey. Yeah. yeah. How, um, uh, what else does this article say? Yeah. Uh, some things that aren't in 2024 may appear in later books. Um, he also points out revised ancestries will be in the 2024 version. So, you know, I think that's that question that I come back to of like, did people really like the change? stone cunning is that really worth pulling forward okay um there will be spell updates including ones not play tested and then in general at gen con there are a number of additional communications and i got this from watching the nerd immersion youtube channel breakdown uh very very interesting is the new bastion system which is like a base that you can have for your characters and this can include forms such as like a tower for wizards so it kind of harkens back to AD&D design um, they will allow the use of downtime by the base itself while you are away adventuring. That reminds me of something. Um, and we will see a version of this in an upcoming Unearthed Arcana. But the point is not to run a kingdom. It is smaller than that scope, is what Perkins said. Um, they did also have a clarification that I thought was interesting. So we've heard in the past, like, hey, you could play like a 2014 character and a 2014 24 subclass and a blah, 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 you know, mix it up however you want, no problem. But they've now said, kind of strangely, you can play a 2014 character, but you're expected to use 2014 subclasses. So if your class is 2014, your subclass should be 2014. But if you play a 2024 class, you can use a 2014 subclass. I don't quite follow that, but it was an interesting sort of not you know, a little break in their compatibility logic. Um, and the last thing was that Kyle Brink did reiterate that the new 2024 rules will be added to the SRD, which is awesome. I mean, that's one of those things where I always wonder, are you really going to do that? And, and so again, that came up as, yes, we are going to do that. Awesome. And uh, speaking of surveys, D&D Beyond put out a survey recently. I got a link and I've seen other people. Did you get one of I these? I did. I did. Okay, cool. So it must be a real thing. Um, they are they're asking players' opinions on certain things, and really, what it came down to for me was they asked what you would be interested in seeing on D and D Beyond, and they gave choices like lore, art, audio, adventures, short adventures, long adventures, rules content, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, fiction. Um, and then had you rank things about whether you were on a scale of one to 10, you know, very interested or not interested at all. And then once you did that, it sort of went and it reaffirmed these things. So it had you then compare four things, which of these four things are you most or least interested in, which I thought as boring as it is, that's a, um, that is a way to check the validity of it. That's a professional yeah. survey uh, system being used. So people were like, they kept asking the same question over and over again. <laughs> yes, that's how yeah. they get correct answers. And so if you want a professional survey, you're going to have to deal with that repetition. Yeah, absolutely. You, you really have to get that skew out of it because of how someone interpreted a question. 
Um, I linked Jared Rasher had some excellent thoughts on the survey and some screenshots where he looks into it. They, they, you know, I think obviously there are community concerns about what it would mean and, and whether it means, you know, hey, there are things on D&D Beyond that you might be offered that you can't buy physically. And is that good or bad for the game? What we will have to see, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, you, if you get a chance, take that uh, take that question, questionnaire, survey, or whatever you want to call it. And we are discussing it on Mastering Dungeons Patreon. So if you want to hear a lot of opinions, a lot of thoughts, a lot of good opinions, a lot of good thoughts, uh, you know, back our back our Patreon, join it. And uh, you can come in and give us your thoughts and share your thoughts with all of the fine people that are there. Speaking of fine people. A couple more things. Yep, a couple more things. One, the Eldritch Lorecast is recording our 100th episode tonight. Um, you won't be seeing this until it's over, but I wanted to give that shout out to Dante, to Dale, to Ben, and to James, who are an amazing team of content creators and visionaries in the role-playing game industry. And thanks to Ghostfire Gaming for letting me be a part of that. And so if you do get a chance, um, in a couple weeks, that episode will come out. Um, uh, check it out but i want to say thank you awesome and last but not least crowdfunding news we're going a little bit off script here and teos is going to tell us about the internet con yeah i mean it ties into things we talk about like how kickstarter changed or even how your dnd beyond changed or your zoom or any of it uh your twitter x etc uh cory doctorow has been an outspoken person on the internet writer and journalist who coined the term, let's call it encrapification. Um, And he's, quote, here is how platforms die. First, they are good to their users. Then they abuse their users to make things better for their business customers. Finally, they abuse those business customers to claw back all the value for themselves. Then they die. And he has talked extensively about uh, looking at the history of, say, the Google results you get, where Google was once praised as being super fast, nothing to do with ads, just nothing but the hit results that you're searching for, and how different it is today, or Amazon, where it used to be, you know, here's what other people are searching for, and now it's, here's what people paid us to put as a search result, and here are our own products that we chose to give you as the search result for the thing you searched for. Um, So Corey is launching a Kickstarter to fund his next book. Um, how to seize the means of computation. And he says, it's time to stop trying to figure out how to save bad platforms. It's time to evacuate them and create better services that are interoperable and open. This is a book that delivers a detailed policy prescription for building evacuation routes for the platforms using interoperability. It's a book that explains what those policies should be, how to get them, and how to administer them so that the tech companies can't wriggle off the hook or cheat their way to glory again link in the show notes or search for it as uh, seize the means of computation on Kickstarter. Excellent. So now the moment you've all been waiting for, we are going to talk with Rob Schwalb of Schwalb Entertainment, creator of Shadow of the Demon Lord with his new Kickstarter, Shadow of the Weird Wizard. We'll see you on the other side and I hope we survive. And as promised, we are back with our special guest this week, Mr. Robert Schwalb of the 
Wisconsin Schwalbs, of the New Jersey Schwalbs, of some sort of Schwalbs. And uh, he is here to talk to us today about all things Schwalb entertainment, including Shadow of the Demon Lord and his new Kickstarter, Shadow of the Weird Wizard. Thank you, Rob, for coming to talk to us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It is a joy to see you both again. Uh, I have missed you, and my uh, human-sized pillows of you just aren't the same. So thanks for taking some time to hang out with me today. Our, the pillow-sized versions of us are much better than the real thing, I will assure you. You should see the games they run, the stuff they write. It's really top quality. It is. It's good <laughs> stuff. It's good stuff. So, Rob, we have you here specifically to talk about your new Kickstarter uh, for Shadow of the Weird Wizard. But we want to go back. Let's go back in time, if you will. Rob Schwab, this is your life. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. No, we, we want to hear a little bit more about you. I think you've actually been on the show before in, in the past times. Uh, but for those who are new to the show... Could you tell us a little bit about you and your game design uh, livelihood, if you will? Uh, sure. Uh, so I, I got started uh, in the in the very early days of the D20 boom. There was a great appetite for uh, anyone who could pick up a keyboard and type out words and had an even passing knowledge of uh, what uh, a D20 system thing might look like. Uh, and because there was a great vacuum into which all sorts of bodies were sucked, uh, I happened to be one of them. And uh, luckily, due to my charming personality and boyish good looks, uh, I was able to secure regular work. Uh, I started off working for a lot of uh, tiny third-party companies, and uh, that eventually landed me a gig with uh, Green Running Publishing, doing some freelance work for them. Uh, as well as uh, Fantasy Flight Games with the grim role-playing game from the Horizon series. Um, I think that game is now older than people who can drink, but whatever. Uh, so that, that there's that. And then uh, I, I ended up working with the, the Ronins or the Ronins uh, during, uh, from 2003 until, I guess, 08 ish somewhere in there and i was the line developer for the d20 system as well as a line developer for warhammer fantasy roleplay second edition uh and i also while there uh, i designed a song of ice and fire role-playing which is the game of thrones role-playing game uh, i also helped out on witch hunter for paradigm concepts and did a did a lot of freelance for wizards of the coast uh where i got my start on tome of magic uh, and that went on to other great things such as Elder Evils and Exemplars of Evils, Tyrants of the Nine Hells. Um, eventually, Wizards of the Coast swooped in, uh, hooked my soul, and dragged me into the Flash Cube of Despair, where I worked on fourth edition products for the entire life of the line. Uh, hilariously, uh, Sean, I was credited on one of your adventures, and I still feel terrible about it to this day. I'm still waiting for my whiskey. Right. I, I've got it. I'm just brewing it. But you you expected it to have my tears. And I cry so much. I keep overflowing the gotcha. whiskey barrel. So from there, uh, I uh, I moved on to work on the 5th edition game. That little thing that people are playing these days, I guess. Uh, and I was part of the design team from the very early days 
uh, when it was led by Rich Baker, and then I uh, was part of the core design team led by Monty Cook, and then I was still on the design team through its last iterations until I finally uh, left uh, with the books in, well in uh, hands of the powers that were and worked on my own stuff henceforth. And that led with launched with uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord in 2015, Punk Apocalyptic in 2019, and then now Shadow of the Weird Wizard. Just follow up so, question. Yeah. Did this usher in the pandemic, Punk Apocalypse? Is all of it responsible? You know, is it all traced uh, back? I don't think that Kickstarter did well enough to, <laughs> to say that it was directly responsible. I like to think that Punk Apocalyptic was a game of its time. Yeah. I mean, it was a really, really delicious year, 2019. Nothing was going on. It was <laughs> smooth sailing, everything was stable. It seemed like a really good time to write a book about the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> Amen to that. So your your transition then from working on third edition, fourth edition, fifth edition led you to want to make a game of your own, I would guess. Uh sure. Uh, I th- you know I've, I've as I mentioned I've worked on uh, several big box games uh, in the past. Um, and, you know, I, I had tried my hand at designing a couple of role-playing games from scratch, and those were published. Uh, and But I've always been kind of a, a, yeah, I've always wanted to just make my own thing that would allow me to do whatever the heck I wanted to do in whatever way I wanted to do it without having a committee telling me that we couldn't do it this way or this way. So it was really, uh, I think Shadow of the Demon Lord was very cathartic for me uh, as far as just allowing me to exercise my demons, not exercise them, exorcise them. Uh, Exercising my demons is my next game next year. Uh, But exorcising my demons, getting rid of them and giving them to uh, the world to play with as if they were their own. Um, But now, you know, here we are years later and uh, I'm doing it again. Oops, I did it again. Just like it. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, when when you say kind of exercising your demons, I feel like the fifth edition process creating D and D five E left you with a feeling of I love this part, I don't love this part. If this were my game, this is I mean, is that kind of what it ended up being? Like I, I this is what I want the role playing game or a role playing game to be. Sure. Uh, I think when anytime you're working with uh, a big property like D&D, and there's really not anything else that's big, but I mean, I guess it was to a lesser extent, uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay had a similar kind of thing. It's a, it's a big, chunky game from a big, huge corporation. Uh, you have a lot of masters you have to, you have to appease. Um, and because the design team for 5th edition was something that was rather nebulous, I mean, there were a lot of casualties along the way. Um, a lot of the attitudes and views uh, towards what is essentially D&D differed in some ways that were baffling, right? I mean, we had Mm -hmm. some designers who came at this game from with expectations from completely different role-playing games that wanted this to be something that it couldn't be. And then there was there, there, you know, there's always the idea of like, what about the fourth edition fans and how much do we appeal, uh, appeal to them? Uh, are we betraying them as like some of the Pathfinder folks felt betrayed once the fourth edition came out? Um, or do we build a gigantic tent game that allows you to play 
all different styles of play and whatever way you want, whether you want to play OSR style uh, dungeon delving uh, where there's not, you're not so concerned about what's in your character sheet, but really how you problem solve and work together, or are you looking for more of a tactical play? And we, I think we had the windmill constructed. We knew what we were, we were aiming for, but it was just a windmill and not a giant. And so the end of the day, we had to make some hard compromises, some of which didn't go down so easy for some people. Uh, and by the time I was done, it wasn't really clear what fifth edition's future was going to look like. Uh, you know, the attitude at the time was like, well, you know, we're writing around pink slips because <laughs> this is like, and we shouldn't be calling it D&D &D next. We should be calling it D&D &D last because we, we have no idea if this is going to go anywhere. And there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, and of course, to my, to all of our surprise, it exploded. And I think it was just, it was, the timing was great, right? I mean, the zeitgeist is the zeitgeist. And uh, I'm not going to send love letters to Stranger Things, but it certainly didn't hurt. And uh, the rise of streaming and the rise of live plays, which were all kind of just bubbling around. They were bubbling. They were simmering at the time of late fourth edition. But I didn't think, you know, their explosion into fifth and fifth's kind of embrace bracing of the theater of their mind my, games mindset. Uh, mind mindset uh, worked out really well and worked out in that game's favor. But to answer your question, since I'm just vomiting forth all sorts of opinions about something I don't work on anymore, um, uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord was not my take of D&D. It was mm -hmm. more about what kind of role-playing game do I want to run? And, you know, I, granted, there are things in D&D that I really like, but there are also things in D&D that, 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 that I don't quite so like. And I was trying to create an experience that was both familiar to, to veterans and newcomers, but also give me the space to do my own thing. Yeah. Uh, and so there was, there wasn't, you know, I, I knew that if I said sphincter in an art order, I wouldn't get, or in a creature's description, no one would be slapping my hand because this could be as edgy as I want it to be. And I really like in Shadow of the Demon Lord of what army of darkness, a role-playing game could look like. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so that was kind of, and that was a, that was a freeing opportunity for me. I got to see some of the ideas that I was experimenting with uh, in previous designs kind of come forward into its own unique uh, entity. Yeah. And, and if I can so maybe tie the with, two together, sorry, Sean, <laughs> um, I no. feel like one of the things that has been a surprising part of 5e's success is that there is a sort of a, a simple elegance not to all of it, but to a lot of it that has resonated with people. And when I hear designers talk about Shadow of the Demon Lord, which is often, I mean, it's all the time. Every designer I know that I kind of care about mentions Shadow of the Demon Lord because it has, I think, an elegance to it, a, a, a level of unobtrusive gameplay that facilitates more happening that... Uh, that is really quite, I want to say novel, but but it, it does it really well. It's really well executed, maybe as I should say. Um, thank you. Well, thank you, because it is inspiring, and, and it's, it's it really is amazing, and I hope you you know how often people are talking about your game and saying, like, like Shadow of the Demon Lord, the way it does that, right? You know, the way the turns work, where the way, uh, uh, you know, the, the Banes and Boons work, and any of that, and, and we talked about it, uh, I think it was, February episode 127, we talked about uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord, looking back at, at, at systems. And it really is 
remarkable. And, and, and so I'm curious kind of what inspired the core of the game. Like, how did you architect that core, which I suspect we'll see some measure of in, 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 in Weird Wizard? Sure. Uh, the core thing, the, the, I guess what I was really looking for was I, let me back that up. I hate preparation. Number one, I don't like to spend any time thinking about stuff when I've got enough to think about on my own. Uh, one of the things, if you love gaming, uh, one of the best ways to kill your hobby is to do it professionally because, you know, it's you have to, well, I guess I could spend eight hours working on my campaign or I could make, uh, I could get a bag of cat food uh, by working on it and selling it. And, you know, sure, sometimes those things might might match, but the electric bill is more important than, um, you know, entertaining a bunch of drunk old guys in my basement every two weeks. So, uh, you know, that's so preparation is one of them. There's also, uh, as I have kind of grappled with my own mental health issues, uh, there is one thing I cannot stand, and that is a sense of being unprepared. Mm. Just walking into any game session, it's like, oh, my gosh, I don't know how to actually resolve this. I don't know what's going to happen next because I didn't spend the right amount of time researching this adventure, which has a reference to a novel that came out in 1987. And there's one paragraph in there that invalidates everything I thought was true. And so I have to sync these things. And now I'm, what am I supposed to do? I don't want that. And so uh, what I did with Demon Lord was I designed it toward a no BS approach to the game. Step one. Step two was there's a, there is a, a school of thought that tabletop role-playing games always have the game system working on in the background. It's like a computer that's running in the background. And that it's the objective is to make that computer, that system, that, that operating system as unobtrusive as possible, even though it's always running. I have a completely different way of looking at it. There is no game system. There are, there are solutions to narrative problems. And the rules give you story, give you ways for the story to solve itself. So, for example, we don't have in Demon Lord a mechanism that says we're talking with the bad guys, we're looking around, combat happens. And so there's no moment of like, all right, everyone, we're going to pull the big lever and we have to go through some arcane process of sorting our tunes into a different order. Uh, that enables us to go, do you ever get a turn in between monsters? And that initiative count can change. And it's not like I'm picking on D&D. It's like there's not a shortage of games that have the same kind of initiative system. And so I was like, screw that. Just players go first. And so, you know, they're the new ones initiating the action in the story. So what do you do? So if you are sitting in, in a, if you are walking in a dungeon corridor and Junior pops open the door and there are a bunch of weird phallic centipede monsters squirming around the floor, feasting on the carcass of a bullheaded lion for whatever reason. Uh, and you might, I would say, what do you want to do? And somebody would say, I want to go and close this door because I never want to see that again. And somebody else says, okay, we're going to, and you go from there. And the rules then just kind of come to the surface while you're, while you're resolving the scene uh, as you're dealing with attack rolls and challenge rolls and casting spells, but then it all fades away once that's over and you switch back into the normal back and forth exchange between players and game masters. Uh, and that's kind of, that's just my attitude towards all of it. Right. And uh, 
so Demon Lord was a, was a way for me to kind of show what I really wanted D and D to be like, uh, but without being D and D. That makes sense, right? I mean, yeah, I think it would be. I think I'm using D and D like I would use Jello. What I want role playing games to be like, yeah. uh, without having to be all those other role playing games. What other design considerations did you have uh, going into making your own game? Yeah, you, know, you you said like your initiative system is. What do you want to do? You want to do it quickly? You want to do it slowly? Okay, then we go quickly and slowly. Makes perfect sense. What other of, of those considerations did you have? Whether it's game design with that machine you talked about that's supposed to run in the background or even campaign-wide. Uh, right. A uh, couple other things I certainly come to mind. Uh, one is uh, I always bristle when, I have, when I'm running an adventure with a get a and we're in the middle of the story arc and we're plotting along, but we can't finish it because it's a 16 hour investment to get through this adventure. And so we play through the first session. Everyone has a great time. It's really awesome. And everyone, we know we're, and of course you end the cliffhanger. And then next time you show up, everybody, but, but Sally can make it. And so either we don't play with Sally, which is feel bad because Sally was the one who pulled the lever uh, or we wait and then we have to try to, to manage scheduling and then all the thrill and the enthusiasm is gone by the time you can get everybody back together. So rather than think about adventures as big chunky things that are just, we're all going through the lives of our characters, adventures in Demon Lord and Weird Wizard and in Punk Apocalyptic all zoom in on the most important moments in your character's career. Now, let's say that you're a, a venturing band or whatever, and you know, you're going to have a tavern you go to, and you might have farms or jobs or businesses or love affairs or all the other things that can go that happen in the background that you might you might take time for in some role-playing games to explore. I don't care about that. And neither should you, because your time is precious, and there are only five of you or six of you or seven of you that get together. And if you can get all those people together, do the thing you're there to do, which is tell a cool story and get out. So adventures are all there for one session only. It also means that I'm not into this idea of five, six, 10 year long campaigns. That was charming when I was 15 uh, and doable uh, when I was in my twenties, but it is not doable now. If I can get five adventures strung together in a row, then I'm winning. So all the campaigns are 10 sessions long. So that means you can play through a full campaign experience where my character feels like I go from being pretty competent to freaking powerful uh, in the span of 10 sessions because each of those sessions zooms in on a specific period of your character's life. So you might play one adventure and then two years might pass in the in the campaign. And in those two years, your character might've gotten married, had a kid, or didn't have a kid, uh, had a business, it failed that business, went on other adventures, did all sorts of other things. But this part here is important to the overarching campaign plot line. And that's kind of, that's not a kind of, that is exactly what uh, Weird Wizard and uh, Demon Lord and Punk Apocalypse are all aiming to do. Awesome. I, I feel like we could talk forever about the innovations you have in, in, in Shadow of the Demon Lord. Like I, I love the class system. I love how you split those experiences up to tell a story of a character. Um, so we can maybe talk about those, but but I wanna make sure that we really talk about where Weird Wizard is going. And so you, you create Shadow of the Demon Lord it's awesome. People are loving it. it. It was, I think, a very successful Kickstarter. Hopefully you feel that way. Um, a lot of acclaim. 
being played at conventions and so on. But you're but you're always thinking, what's the next thing? And so how, how did that come to be? Uh, right. Uh, the thing that I found with Demon Lord is that not everybody likes Evil Dead. <laughs> Who knew? Right. I mean, I thought you want to have toilet humor. Don't you want to, don't you laugh at poop jokes? Right. You know, and, and demons exploding out of your, apparently I was wrong. And so I discovered that as much as people like the game system, uh, there were enough dark things in the game that some folks bounced off of it. And that made me sad, very sad because I think that there, that, the core, the guts of this game were a lot of fun. And you can, even though you can exclude elements and you can tailor it to whatever experience you want. Uh, I know that, that immediate, that there's there, that's a level of effort that I wouldn't go through myself and why should I expect other people to do it? So it wasn't long after Demon Lord came out that I thought I would do a sanitized version. And uh, I remember Chris Premis had said, but why isn't that why people bought, isn't the toilet humor the reason why people bought Demon by the game anyway, but I was like, well, wait and see. And um, so I started working on it. Now this is back in 2016, probably, mm-hmm. where I started first compiling my notes. And and I know that uh, I've talked about it being the last five years that I've been throwing my life into this game, um, but it's really longer. Uh, the last five years have been mostly uh, where I've been largely focused on just trying to get it done and get it out the door. Uh, so with this game, I it gave me the opportunity to kind of rethink some of the things that I had done in, uh, in Demon Lord, for example, uh, initiative systems, a little different. It's the same thing where, you know, you are in a, you're in a story scene, but then instead of the players going first, uh, the monsters go first and the players have the opportunity to say, oh, well, I want to spend this resource and take the initiative and go ahead of the monsters. And they just give up their reaction for the round. Big deal. Um, but it allows them some agency about doing that. And there aren't like two tiers of phases that you're having to go through. So it streamlines that. Boons and Banes are still there. Path system is still there. Characters are more powerful in Demon Lord because the expectation is this is heroic fantasy, not gritty horror fantasy. Um, So I expect characters to be able to do more and to be able to take more abuse and also be able to uh, do more spectacular things at the top tier of the game, at the master tier. And so the mechanics kind of reflect all that. Um, but some other things that changed too is like, I mean, I kind of, uh, you know, I, I amended my opinion about uh, modifiers for ancestries on your core attributes. That was one of the things that I had kind of wrestled with for a long time. And I, and I finally came down to the idea that like, you know, we just don't need to have, right? Because everyone's basically human. We want to treat them all as humans. Then we'll just make them all humans and know, and they all have the same range of potential within themselves. Um, the other things I did with this game too, was that I really looked at how some of the classic classical concepts of monsters that have appeared in fantasy role-playing games are treated and re- rethought them to make them more, more appropriate for our modern times. For example, like orcs, there was a big discussion about orcs being inherently racist. Well, in a, and, there, and I could see both sides of this argument, right? I mean, if, if gods create their mortals in their own image, and if you have an evil god, then what you create would be evil. That's kind of the fantastical element there. Uh, but then at the same time, there's also the, the trope of the noble savage that I think a lot of people kind of want to embrace or put on the orc, which is also fine. 
rather than deal with that at all, I just made orcs monsters that are grown out of sickness of the soul. So that if you are contaminated by the ancient ones, these impossible beings of vast and terrible power that Lord Death himself bound to the chains of the Earth Dragon and wrapped around and made the crust of the world, when they start thrashing around in their dreams, some of their ooze leaks up and that pollutes uh, whatever peoples that happen to be nearby and turns them into bloodthirsty killers. So there's our, the orcs are not a playable option at all because they're, they're horrific, not horrific, but they're scary monsters. Mm-hmm. And the way they should be in the concept of like, these are not things that we're going to interact with in a peaceful manner because they are a byproduct of some obvious wickedness that is going on in the campaign setting. So you then created a Kickstarter and yes. it's off and running. And we know that you are, are a prolific writer. Uh, anyone who knows you or knows the industry is aware of that. And it doesn't look like you're slowing down with this Kickstarter. Uh, we already have via stretch goals, a 350-page core book, a 325-page GM book, multiple quests, and more and more and more. Uh, other than questioning your sanity, uh, how 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 are you feeling about the Kickstarter? Uh, you know, I'm. It's exciting. Uh, it, there's the, you know, one of the things that comes with this business is a great uh, sense of imposter syndrome, and even though that I've been doing this for 20 years, I still kind of feel like uh, I'm just full of crap and no one, you know, I'm, mm. this is. So this is the great validation, and it does. You know, even yeah, it's great validation. I will say, uh, the the volume of content that uh, I'm making for this game, I think I'd like to remind people that I was going to do this anyway. Uh, then, because if you have been following along with Demon Lord, there's no shortage of things to play with in that game. Uh, it is one of the things I, I kind of run into often in tabletop gaming uh, is that. People have these cool ideas for worlds or games, but they never give you anything to do with it. Uh, and if you do, they're, they're, you know, you get one campaign a year at most, and then you don't get anything else after that. And you might get a couple of adventures, and if you're lucky, it may be a splat book, and then it's like then the game's dead. Uh, my games are meant to be played, uh, and often, and I will take the hit financially to make sure there are enough quests out there so that people can, or adventures, so that people can play the game for as long as they want. Uh, we've got, as of this weekend, we just unlocked the a big stretch goal, which brought up our total number of quests to 30. That's 30 adventures, uh, plus two full campaigns, which have 10 adventures each of those. That's 50 adventures, plus the top-tier Kickstarter backers get three exclusive adventures that will not be published anywhere else. So, I mean, there's going to be a ton of content for this game, not including, and then also, you know, we get new ancestries, we're going to get some new magic, we're going to get some new magic items, we're going to get all sorts of new goodies. And these will, all this stuff will start releasing once the core game's out. And so you'll have a steady supply, a steady stream of weird wizard content that will probably extend two, three, maybe even four years from now. Uh, in addition to what I'm doing for Demon Lord and the last stuff I'm doing for Punk Apocalyptic, as well as the other projects that I've got waiting to for me to start it's amazing a lot i I would say to anybody who's listening who has not had the pleasure of backing one of your projects it is an experience uh of which there's no comparison in the 
Kickstarter crowdfunding world, when, when you back Rob's projects, you, you're like, cool, I backed it. And then something arrives and you're like, oh, neat, look, I got that. And then a little time passes and more arrives. And that repeats kind of to the end of time. <laughs> like it's, 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 it's unbelievable. I mean, I'm still every now and then I'll get a punk apocalyptic thing in my mail. I'm like, oh, cool. And, and, it's un, and, and like you said, there's a breadth of what's offered that extends the game in a lot of different ways and makes it even more useful because it has so many permutations in, in, in what's available, the types of quests, the types of uh, expansions and supplements that are out there. It, it really is amazing. Um, I, I guess that, you know, I kind of think to myself as a creator, A, how do you do it? How do you write that much? And B, do you think it works to offer it all this way as part of as, as a stretch goal, essentially? A lot of it is stretch goals. So that, you know, of course, later you're going to sell it. But but does that model work or is it just kind of what you have to do, the way you, your brain works? Or? Uh, I think in this case, it's mostly I look at a lot of the quests uh, and those kinds of things, the smaller bits as advertising costs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I release, uh, I just released the Crawling Sea on uh, drive through Monday of last week. And it's doing really well. It's still in the top 10 of the under five bucks and people are still buying it. And that makes me very happy. And it's a disturbing, disgusting romp through my, my twisted, twisted imagination. But um, it, you know, when you see that product as a consumer, you're going to see this, well, that's a dollar 89 or two bucks or two twenty nine, And I can buy the game for it for probably discounted, or I can get through bundle of holding. And then once I, and so that's all I, that's all I need. It's just, just the first taste and mm -hmm. I'll hook you. And that's, so it's, it's the idea that uh, keeping the game out there, it's much easier to keep sales going on a core book. If people perceive your game as still being alive, mm -hmm. it's much harder to keep your game going because that's where you want your core book sales. And I'm still selling core books every month years later. And it's like this, I'm well into the point when people are just saying it's time for a second edition Shadow of the Demon Lord, which is not going to happen because I don't need to make it happen because I can still make cool product for the, the original game. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, I think it's worth it. I think it's not a model that everybody can do. Uh, yeah. I don't think I have a superpower. I think it's just I have a, just the right mixture of self-loathing and OCD to make sure that I can pump out as much content as possible. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> those are those are two wonderful superpowers uh, for a game designer to have, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was just having a conversation, not not quite with those words, but along those lines with my kids about you know <laughs> sometimes why we can produce isn't necessarily all healthy, but you got to run with what you know God gave you, or <laughs> what nature gave yep, you. Yep, yep, yep. Mm -hmm. Make most. So. Uh, if you had to give one, uh, you know, the elevator pitch for Weird Wizard, what would that be? Okay, yeah. Uh, there are people in this fantasy world who need your help right now because they're fleeing the collapse of what they have long treated as their civilization. And they're fleeing across a salty or salt badlands, salt wastelands, much like Utah. They're crossing Utah which who wants to do that uh, to get to some place that is far from the chaos, violence and the, the warfare and the disease and all the awfulness 
that is the old country and to find something that is new. And this place that's new is called the Borderlands. And the Borderlands, this is a place that has largely been untouched because it had been within the aegis of the weird wizard himself. And the weird wizard is this sinister figure of vast magical power who dwells in the forbidden city with his clockwork servants and a strange hybrid pig snakes and people tours or whatever. And they're all kind of roaming around and no one wants to go there, but he vanished. So there's this great, this great opportunity for people to kind of start again. And in this borderlands area, there are pockets of civilization, free cities that dot the coastline of the sea of fear. There are, uh, the horse lords, which is a vast centaur herd that hunt the curl beaks uh, and and have their own territory and wage war against the hideous Fomorians, which are uh, bizarre amalgamations of humans and beasts cursed by one of the ancient ones. There are twisted fairies that live in the wood, the jungles of Za. Uh, there are secrets to un- uncover, ancient ones to defeat, cults to thwart, demons to, to destroy. There's so much more to do in this game that I can even tell you in this elevator ride and we're getting close to the top floor. So I will tell you this. It's awesome. Yeah. Oh, it's muted again. I have no doubt that it will be awesome and I cannot wait to, to punish and delight my players <laughs> with my first weird wizard campaign. I'm looking very much forward to it. Now, I should mention that this is a family-friendly game. Mm-hmm. There are dark corners, but there are dark corners in every fantasy game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the goal here is to cast as wide of a net as possible to ensure that everybody can come to this game and have a good time. Uh, so there will there are demons. The cosmology has certain elements in common. And if you're a true demon lord nerd, you might recognize some concepts like the void, the gap between realities, and that there might be some shadowy figure that's out there in that void who might mm. cause some problems for this world sometime way, way down the road. But for now, it's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's that's great. Cool. And yeah. uh, you guys, you know, you, your heroes are, are heroes. You're going to help these folks establish their new lives here in the borderlands, and everything will be sunshine and roses. Until <laughs> well, I, I think you're correct in, in that uh, idea of casting a wider net because – as I'm looking at it at this very moment, you're creeping up on $300,000 and nearly 3,000 backers with with about halfway through the, the Kickstarter. Uh, so I I feel like that maybe outdid Demon Lord um, it, just in terms of the raw numbers. Yeah, we did uh, De- all of Demon Lord's Kickstarter we did in the first day. Uh, and so we're double that. Mm-hmm. Um in fact, I think so. I mean, it's it's going really, really well. Uh, I don't want to jinx it. I'm not a superstitious person, but uh, Kickstarter does contribute to the fear and self-loathing. So it, it's a it's it's a it's a. I'll be very happy 16 days from now. Yeah, yeah, and and for folks listening, it, it ends September 7th at eight o'clock in the morning Pacific time. So uh, do it earlier so that Rob has less fear and loathing um but you can also i I don't want to forget this you can go to the kickstarter page search for shadow of the weird wizard there's a link in our show notes and you can get the quick play which has five pre-gens rules and a complete adventure you can run so you can even try it out 
uh, before backing, which is super awesome. And now, Rob, if people want to find your work, not on the Kickstarter, but elsewhere, or follow you on social media, God God forbid, uh, where can they find you? Uh, right. We are, I have a website. I know it's weird and crazy. There's this new thing called the internet, uh, and it's schwabentertainment.com. Uh, I am available, and I friend almost everybody except, uh, well, just about anybody on Facebook as Robert J. Schwab. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, or also known as X, or whatever it'll be called next week as Schwab underscore Ent. Uh, and then I'm also on Instagram, but that's mostly cat pictures, beer, and books. Uh, and then uh, you can that. Then we also have company pages on uh, Facebook. And there's a Shadow of the Demon Lord group on Discord, which also has a lively and uh, uh, enthusiastic group of folks who are hardcore Demon Lord, Weird Wizard fans. Nice. Awesome. Pay us nice. anything else? I mean, I just want to thank you, Rob, because everything you design is a pleasure, whether it's for fourth edition, fifth edition, uh, certainly your own games, and, and especially your own games. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited for this. Thanks for creating. I, I know uh, one of the interviews that I read, you know, we were talking about the process of sort of convincing yourself to take this to the finishing line. I'm really glad you did, because I, I think it'll it'll better a lot of designers out there, a lot of DMs as well and players. But but I, I think it's really good for the industry to have this out there. So I'm, I'm excited to see it. Well, thanks, man. I, I would be doing a disservice uh, to the memory of my dear friend, Kim Mohan, without mentioning him. But uh, this would not have been possible without him and his guidance and his mentorship. Uh, and this is uh, the project we were going to do together as kind of our last big go. And unfortunately, we lost it before we could get to the finish line. But uh, this is really for him. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. Yeah. In incredible. And, and nice. one, of, one of his many gifts. Yeah. So I'm glad for that. Well, thank you, Rob, and we wish you continued success going forward, and I'm sure we will be reaching out to you again to hear more of your exploits. I can't wait. Thanks, guys, for having me. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rob. So there was Rob Schwalb of Schwalb Entertainment, Shadow of the Demon Lord, Punk Apocalypse, and Shadow of the Weird Wizard. I love talking with Rob. It's incredible. And I can tell that this game is different than Shadow of the Demon Lord because I don't feel like I have to go shower right now. I still feel clean. I feel refreshed. Right. It's 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 true. It's true. Um, one of the one of the funnest experiences I've had at a convention recently or within the last you know ten years or so was up in Buffalo. Rob came up as a guest, and just, like just sitting at the bar with Rob after the games were done and just talking about experiences that we've had. Uh, you know, he's had much more experience working with wizards and and in the industry than I have. So just like hearing that things I saw were the same things he was seeing. And, and it was, it was a great, it was a great moment for me. Um, I don't even think I ever told Rob that, but uh, it was, it was, it was pretty special. So. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I've had similar experiences uh, with him and a couple of other designers that sometimes you think that, and I've heard this like recently, even on our discord, there've been some comments that sometimes say like, Oh, uh, you know, 2024 process is is off its rocker versus they should have done exactly what they did for 5e. And and I appreciate that Rob spoke to that a bit and that like that was not some perfect 
flawless system. It was cacophony. It was chaos. And through it emerged enough through everybody's hard work and so on that it ended up being this amazing game, uh, which it is an amazing game in its own right. And then also probably a number of other things that made it really explode um, that may be our luck. But but a lot of it comes down to that game. But but it you, it's not like you look back and you go, oh, yeah, that was a flawlessly executed plan. N- not in the least. Right. And, and I think you and I probably take guidance from that and looking at 2024 that there's some real potential there for it to to sort itself out just the way 5e did so <laughs> one hopes yeah yeah but yeah so it, if you it, do get a chance please support rob and his work yeah. um and we will keep an eye on that kickstarter as it as it comes out and then fulfills over the years because i know that i am a high tier backer and i assume teos is as well <laughs> Thank you out there to our listeners and our supporters. If you are a patron of the show, we very much appreciate it. And if you would like to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mastering DND. For our Master of Dungeon supporters, thank you. Master of the Realm supporters, you know you're in our show notes. And for our Masters of the Multiverse you are in our podcast. Keith Aman of The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Eric, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, DM Chad, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, aka DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shotney, Krishna Simonse, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you all for being supporters. Uh, you can also support us by leaving reviews on Apple Podcast, or you can subscribe to us via YouTube. Teos, where can people find you and your work? Uh, best place is to go to alphastream.org. From there, you can find everywhere I've been uh, doing things. Um, and Sean, if I'm hunting you down, where should I bring my weaponry and camouflage? You can bring it to either Twitter, Mastodon, or Blue Sky, or Facebook. Um, the show even has an account uh, on Blue Sky and on Twitter and on uh What's the other one there? Mastodon. Uh, so you can find us all over all the places. Yeah. So, everywhere. So, Teos, we are now in the realm of the Weird Wizard. What are we going to do now? Uh, I am for sure going to go explore that clockwork tower that Rob talked about. That sounds absolutely awesome. And I'm going to be on the lookout for orcs because they sound pretty nasty. <laughs> yeah.